And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 12, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this incredible and awesome reminder of the war that has been engaged on our behalf to deliver us from Satan and his tyranny, to deliver us from death and the grave. And we thank you for our victor, our champion, our King Jesus. Thank you that we can continue to worship him and glorify him and rejoice in him today. Uphold us and strengthen us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, over the last 20 years or so, the worlds of government and education and retail have grown increasingly uncomfortable with the explicitly Christian nature of Christmas. I mean... Christ is right there in the name. So I don't, I don't understand, uh, but, but uh, it, it seems that everywhere you look, there's this uncomfort, this discomfort with the Christian nature of Christmas. And part of it on the front end is, is justified by some principle of inclusion for non-Christians, but inclusion has found its expression in exclusion of things that many Christians in a broadly Christian culture and the majority of people enjoy and appreciate. So that now manger scenes that once decorated courthouse lawns have been replaced by nondescript snowmen and reindeer. Public schools that once had Christmas parties and Christmas pageants now have holiday parties or, or, or winter parties. But they stay very far away from the word Christmas and, and traditional Christmas symbols and Christian symbols as well. The stores and the malls have for several years attempted to maintain some kind of religious neutrality with holiday sales and holiday trees, and they wish you happy holidays, which to be honest, isn't really that big of a deal. I mean, no one should be offended by that. What is a holiday? It's a holy day, and we have a whole slew of holy days to uh, rejoice in and celebrate this time of year. 
Even still, while uh, we, we lead with and we hear uh, this, this plastering over of the word Christmas, this wallpapering over of Christ and the story of, of the nativity and the birth of Jesus, we all still know what we're shopping for. We all know what we're celebrating. No one is packing out the department stores and no one's filling up the grocery carts to buy things for the Islamic fast day of Asherah, which also happened around this time. Hanukkah has been around for a long time, but now serves mostly as an alternative Christmas for secular Jews. And it appears that the Kwanzaa experiment has run its course. I hear less and less about, about that. But, but nobody's lighting up their house and dragging trees inside and giving gifts and walking around the block singing to their neighbors and giving them cookies because it's the winter solstice. That's not why we're doing these things. No one goes Kwanzaa caroling, right? This is a time of year where we get this perfect snapshot of how our culture throughout the year and at many levels is running on the fumes of Christendom while denying the source of all these great things without worshiping our king. We have these incredible blessings from God and yet we hate his law and we reject his lordship. And then, and then when some of us object and some of us say, you know, wait, let's not forget the actual reason that we're giving thanks and rejoicing this time of year. How about we not turn this into just another secular day off of work? Uh, why don't we do that? Th then we get this gaslighting response about the so-called war on Christmas. Leftists love to talk about the, the war on Christmas as if it's something that, that we've ginned up and we feel very persecuted that there are red Starbucks cups or something and I never quite understood what was going on there and I'm not, I'm not sure. This these imaginary controversies that get ginned up which no one actually cares about. Uh, our objection is not because we are feeling persecuted, this is about proclaiming that the only reason that you're selling any of these sweaters and socks and gift baskets with the sausages and the crackers and the little jellies, the only reason that these things are being bought and given is because the church believes that the birth of her king is a really big deal. A lot of people outside the church get caught up in the fun because it is fun, but Jesus and his people are the source of this celebration. And so if there is a war on Christmas, we need to remember, it didn't start 20 years ago. Christmas has always been about warfare. Christmas is a declaration of war on the world. The world's systems, its gods, its values, all of it has a big target painted on it. Christmas is warfare. And we see this illustrated in Revelation chapter 12. In, in the study of, our, of, of Revelation so far, we've, we've gotten John's peek behind the curtain into the heavenly view of earthly events. We get to see things happening on earth through heaven's eyes and from heaven's perspectives. And so while we get the nativity scene in the, in the gospels where we see a man and a woman a baby in a manger, a star, some shepherds. We know that something bigger is happening. We know that that's, that's not all there is to the story. Because very shortly after the baby's born, we think, well, why does Herod want to kill? Why does he want to destroy this boy? Why do wise men come from afar? We need a bigger story and a bigger narrative to pull all these things together and assign them meaning. We have a story in the Gospels about something bigger than a poor people 
that, than poor people having a baby in less than ideal conditions. What we have is a story about the impending destruction of the world and how that destruction was thwarted. When you read John's gospel, John doesn't have a manger scene, but in John's writing, he does have a nativity scene, and that's in Revelation chapter 12. This, in Revelation chapter 12, this is John's narrative of the birth of Jesus. And here in Revelation, we stand at a different vantage point, and we see a woman who's not a maiden. She's, she's not a simple young girl. When we look at her in Revelation 12, she is a wonder. She's not huddled in a stable. She's clothed with sun and moon and stars. And the threat to her isn't just a human king. The threat to her is a dragon with a tail so long and so fearsome that he threatens to knock the stars out of the sky. From heaven's perspective, Christmas isn't so much about a silent, peaceful night. From heaven's perspective, Christmas is the beginning of this colossal battle between two very old enemies. It's important that we get this picture of Christmas as well as the one that we get in the Gospels in order to see the whole story. Now, at the end of this passage we read just a few minutes ago, the heavens rejoice when they witness these events, and these things are the reason we celebrate. So we get this view as well, and we can rejoice in this. We sing, and we dance, and we eat, and we drink, and we give gifts, and celebrate like we do, because there has been a fight, and our champion has won. As I said on Christmas Eve, you don't have a party like Christmas over an idea or a mantra or a principle. But you do rejoice when things were going the wrong way for a very long time and suddenly they're going the right way. Suddenly things are going the right direction. There's been stress and tension and grief and suffocating sorrow and suddenly all is light and bright and cheer and joy. Here is the source and the spring of that joy. Many parts of Revelation that we've studied and read are difficult to understand, but I believe that this chapter, any young person in this congregation could tell us who's the woman, who's the dragon, who's the son. This is, this is very easy to interpret. There's, it doesn't take a lot of head scratching to identify these characters. In fact, when it comes to the dragon in verse 9, we're told precisely who he is. He is the serpent of old. He is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And a few verses later, he's called the accuser. He gets all of his names right there. There's no doubt who the dragon is in Revelation 12. He is the one who tempted the woman in the garden and tricked her and introduced sin to Adam's race. This dragon's entire purpose from day one has been to destroy mankind through lying. Last week we saw how he uses fear. This week we see another weapon that he has, and that is his lying. He looks terrible, and he looks frightening in this description, but he doesn't kill with his talons, and he doesn't kill with his teeth. He breathes lies the way that dragons in our imagination breathe fire. His fire is deception. By deception, he twists men's minds. He causes them to hate God, hate the woman, hate her offspring. He is called an accuser of the brethren here. He doesn't have to turn natural enemies toward one another, against each other. That's not a problem. Natural enemies, he's already got them covered, but his, his tactic is to turn brothers against each other. That's his real business, to provoke brothers to hate each other and even hate them to the point of murder. 
His number one goal has been to use his deceit in such a way that he destroys the woman and destroys her son with her. He's been trying it from the beginning. He tried it with Cain and Abel. He tempted Cain to murder his brother. He tried later to corrupt Israel with idol worship in Egypt. He repeatedly attacked the people in the promised land, trying to prevent their becoming established in the promised land. And he does it by lying. He stirs up oppressors from without and corruptors from within. And then we get to the Christmas narrative. We get to the incarnation narrative in the gospels and he stirs up Herod. He fills Herod's head with lies and he sends out his army to destroy the infant Jesus. Tomorrow on the church calendar is the feast day commemorating the innocents, the baby boys who were killed in Herod's slaughter. In, in our Christmas narrative, Herod is the supreme bad guy. He's the destroyer. He's the liar. He's the murderer. But now in Revelation 12, we see behind the scenes, we see the story from heaven's perspective and we recognize that Herod is only one in a long line of pawns who have been deceived by the dragon. This is the way Satan works. Wherever there are lies, wherever there's murder, wherever there's deceit, Wherever oppressors are raised up against the church or wherever corruption is introduced from within, there is the work of the dragon. The dragon is very easy to identify. Another image we see in this story in Revelation 12 is the image of the woman. She's a woman clothed with the sun. The moon is at her feet. Her head is adorned with a crown of 12 stars. Where in the Bible do we see all these themes where do we see all these pictures together? Where do we see all these symbols, sun, moon, and stars? One place is Genesis 37, when Joseph is still at home with his brothers, and he has a dream that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars came and bowed before him. That was the dream that he had, and of course he shares it with his brothers. I don't know that I would have done that, but he does. He shares it with his brothers, and his brothers get upset by the dream uh, when his father Jacob interprets it as referring to Joseph's mother and father and, and brothers bowing down to Joseph. But then his, his brothers get so upset that they actually set things in motion that cause that very thing to come true. They sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt. He climbs up to a place in the Egyptian government by God's providence where his father and his mother and his brothers do come down and bow before him in Egypt. Sun, moon, and stars throughout the scriptures are symbols of rulers and authority, and they get carried over here. So now we see the woman clothed with sun, moon, and stars around her head. We know what we're seeing. We know that we are seeing Israel. This woman is the nation of Israel. She is the bride of Yahweh. In uh, Song of Solomon, which we studied several months ago, the bridegroom sings of his bride. He says, who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? The bridegroom describes his bride in these celestial terms. So in the Christmas story, in Luke's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, we see Mary. But here we see a woman who's not just Mary, but she's Eve, and she's Rachel, uh, and she's Samson's mother, and she's Hannah. She's all the mothers of Israel and the nation of Israel as a whole that produced the chosen offspring. 
Jesus told the woman of the well, he said, salvation is from the Jews. It was from this chosen race that the Savior comes. This chosen race pictured here by this woman. Mary, at the birth of Jesus, stands as a representative of this woman, all women who faithfully raised up deliverers. And her son, of course, is easy to identify as well. In verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. It seems like I've been referring to Psalm 2 quite a lot lately, and that's just uh, probably coincidence, but it's also been on my mind. But here the psalmist writes about how Yahweh commissioned his Messiah to rule the nations, and he says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. There's no question now who the man with the rod of iron is in, in Psalm 2. And now we have a child with a rod of iron in Revelation 12. It's the same man. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who is born to rule. The rod of iron is not a fearful thing. If you kiss the sun, if you draw near to the sun, as the, solemn, uh, as the psalmist recommends, draw near the sun, his iron rod is for your defense. And it's a weapon for beating back the dragon and for crushing his head. So now we know who the characters are. We know who the dragon is. We know who the woman is. We know who the son is, the offspring. Now, what takes place in this vision in Revelation 12? First, this cosmically adorned woman is in labor pain. She's giving birth, just as Israel groaned and labored to produce the promised seed. They waited for the promise to come through the rule of priests and judges and kings, who even at their very best fell short of being the kind of rulers that they needed, which made the anticipation and the expectation of this holy king all the more acute. They suffered under the rule of tyrants because of their idolatry. They suffered with internal conflict because of their corruption, suffering on behalf of the world as a kingdom of priests before God, crying out in labor, waiting for the promise to appear as this woman cries out and waits for the birth of her child. She stands in for all of Israel. And then here comes the dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his heads. Remember several weeks ago, I said, we need to stop and study Daniel. This is a picture from Daniel. Daniel talks about four beasts and one of the beasts has four heads. That makes a total of seven heads. And there are 10 crowns. There are 10 kings who rule over those four beastly kingdoms. Um, and that's, that's all in Daniel. We'll get back to this in, in Revelation 17 and we'll look at it in more detail. But uh, this is, this is the, the, the picture of the dragon, and this is his, his image. It's the image that goes all the way back to Daniel. His tail draws a third of the stars out of the sky. Maybe this is an indication that Satan drew a third of the angels into rebellion with him, that demon horde that we read about in the fifth trumpet. Here the dragon stands at ready in front of the woman, ready to pounce and devour her child as soon as he is born. But as soon as this child is born, she takes him and she flees into the wilderness to a place where God has prepared for her to be protected. Just as Joseph and Mary run to Egypt to protect Jesus. And from this point, the story is compressed so that the whole work of Jesus from his birth through his ministry and crucifixion, resurrection, and his ascension is all combined in just a few words. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of 
of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. John knows that you have the Gospels. John knows that you have that information in other places. He's telling the story in a symbolic way, and here he's compressing it all together, that the Son of God is protected, and then he ascends to his throne. He's caught up to God to his throne, not because he's escaping the world, but because it's from heaven where he conducts his warfare. This is where he fights. War then breaks out in heaven where Jesus and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels and where the devil is defeated. He's cast down and all of his angels with him. There's something that happens with the ministry of Jesus. It seems that Satan had some kind of access or some kind of audience with God before the ministry of Jesus. In the Old Testament, you see Satan walking into God's presence in Job, right? Uh, but now that the decisive victory has been won, Satan has no avenue to make his accusations before the throne of God. Satan has been tossed out. He no longer has an audience. Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, he said, I beheld Satan fall like lightning. Uh, when his disciples went out casting out demons. So at the very least, we see that Satan's power after this point is greatly reduced and his movement is limited. So from earth where Satan is cast down, he continues to pursue this woman who gave birth to the child. He is enraged with her. He can't destroy her offspring. So he tries his best to torment her. John's vision continues in this symbolic telling of the persecution of the church after Jesus's ascension. We pick this up at verse 13 and just hear the next few verses. We're going to unpack this uh, in greater detail in, in coming weeks, but just hear this section now. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the, present, uh, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman and that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Christ. Uh, we're living in these last few verses here with the dragon failing to defeat the son, now making war on the woman and her offspring, and the son continues to protect her and defend her. But the dragon is enraged with the woman for bringing forth the son. And if he's enraged at her for bringing forth the son, think about how mad he must be, how, much, how enraged he still must be at the continual annual reminder that the woman brought forth the son. How much does Satan enjoy it when we sing about and we talk about and celebrate the birth of this holy offspring, this, this boy, this child, this king? Of course there's a war on Christmas. Christmas is war. It's, a, it's war against the dragon, and it's a war uh, carried out by the dragon against the woman and her offspring. So viewing these events through heaven's perspective, we see that the birth of Jesus was a declaration of war. The birth of Jesus was not this quiet, peaceful, tranquil event. When we think of the birth of Jesus, we've seen too many live nativity scenes, right? There's just people milling around, shepherds silently gazing at the baby, animals chewing their cud in the stable. One song says, the little Lord Jesus, when he awakes, no crying he makes. 
uh, I don't know that that is really accurate. Jesus cried, I'm sure. And as much as you and I would like to imagine some sort of peaceful, serene setting on that night, when we look at this from heaven's perspective, all hell is breaking loose as this king is born who will wrestle his creation from death and sin, who will win his people from the power of the dragon. The birth of Jesus begins this decisive military campaign, this assault on the stronghold of the dragon, the stronghold of death. So while we hear the angels singing in Luke's gospel and we hear them rejoicing at the same time in Revelation 12 in the background we see the demons crying out in fear as the rightful ruler of the earth has entered creation. Both songs are being sung at the same time and we see our place in the story. We can read the gospel accounts of the nativity at arm's length and we can wonder where do I fit? Where do I fit in this narrative? Am I the shepherd? Am I in Joseph's place? Am I one of the wise men? Where do I fit? Revelation 12 puts us into the story. The woman has become the church, now pursued by the dragon. And we are in the company of those who are at war with the dragon. This vision in, in Revelation 12 pulls us into this conflict. And so now we see where we fit. What are our responsibilities? What are the characteristics of those who make war with the dragon? What are our weapons in this warfare? Listen very quickly to verse 11 and 12 and 17. Pay close attention. They overcame him. This is the dragon. These are the people of God, the offspring, overcoming the dragon. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What do we have here? What are, what are, the, what are the characteristics of those who make war on the dragon and defend the woman against him? Well, they've got the blood of the lamb, They've got the word of the testimony of Jesus, which is mentioned twice, the word of the Lord. They have a love for something bigger than their life and the ability to rejoice. These are our armaments. In, uh, in many of our stories about knights rescuing maidens from dragons, there's usually a special weapon that the knight has to obtain. His sword doesn't work. His, his, normal, his normal armaments don't work against the dragon. Not any old weapon will do. It isn't that easy. He either has to find a special weapon or he's got to learn about the weakness of the dragon. Like when a bard shoots smog in the left breast where there's a chink in his armor and he can aim an arrow right into the soft part of the underbelly of smog. Um, well, we have our special weapons against the dragon and they all expose his weaknesses. The dragon doesn't have anything to offer that compares with the blood of the lamb. That's one of our armaments. In, in the dragon system, there is no forgiveness. There is no reconciliation. There's no grace. There's no peace. There's no satisfaction of debt in the dragon's regime. They have nothing in their arsenal to, to match the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is a defensive weapon in part by which we repel the assaults of the dragon. 
when we are resting in and under the blood of the Lamb. We are resting in the work of Jesus on the cross. And when we're resting in Jesus, we become impervious to the lies of the dragon. Lies are his mega weapon. And we render him powerless when we're resting in the blood of the Lamb. He can't accuse us anymore. He can't accuse us of things we've been forgiven of. He can't accuse our brethren of things that we can't deal with as brethren. He can't stir up trouble among us and corrupt us from within because we are so serious about the gospel and the forgiveness found in the gospel that we don't listen to lies about ourselves or about our brethren. We deal with things directly and forthrightly. We don't spread fear or lies. And the blood of the lamb is also offensive against the dragon in the sense that we extend forgiveness and reconciliation to all men. We put them in fellowship with God. We have the blood of Christ to atone for sin, to give life and to free men from oppression and slavery, which Satan hates. He can't offer these things. He can't offer peace of mind or freedom from guilt. That's the first thing. We have the blood of the lamb. Secondly, we have the word of the Lord. He can't offer the truth or the order or the consistency that the word of the Lord contains. Those who prefer to live under the dragon's regime are confused and hopeless and disordered. We have the definitive and authoritative law of God to organize life. It's the sharp two-edged sword. They have a mess of conflicting ideas and philosophies that they just put in a blender and, and try to make sense of the world. Then those who fight for the woman and those who fight against the dragon have a love for something bigger than their life. That's what it says. Uh, they did not love their lives to the death. If the dragon can convince us that death is the worst thing and that, that death is the end of your existence, it all goes away when you die, well, then he has something going for him. Death is scary. And if we're worried above all things about self-preservation, then, then, then the dragon is really dangerous. But if the ones pursued by the dragon are not loving themselves and not loving their own lives, but ready to sacrifice everything, even their breath for their king, then what does the dragon have? The woman and her offspring are known by their sacrificial living. They don't love their lives to the death because Jesus didn't. And this frustrates the, the mission and the objective of the dragon. And then the thing that really twists the knife is the saint's ability to rejoice. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and all you who dwell in them. They rejoice. Put them in prison and they sing hymns. Put them in the lion's den and they pray. Put them in the arena with the wild beasts and they preach the gospel. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Who, who dwells in the heavens? Who does that? You do. Ephesians 2 says you have been raised up together with Christ and he has made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are the inhabitants of heaven. And then, of course, uh, in, the rest of that, in the rest of that verse, uh, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. The inhabitants of the land and the sea are the kingdoms of this world who are bearing the great wrath of the dragon. He's enraged, it says in verse 17. Okay, so what do you do? If you sit in the heavens and you're seated in the heavenly places, how do you show the world that the sun 
has cast the dragon down and defeated him. Well, it says rejoice. That's the command. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. You rejoice. You celebrate. You throw a party. You have the loudest, biggest, longest festival of the year. The dragon would rather you forget what happened. He would rather you not make a big deal about it. Maybe just make it small and puny and just get it over with. Just, just do something small. Just give a little, little acknowledgement. Something happened and then, and then get over it. And then, and then maybe on top of that, he'll make you feel super guilty for spending money on all these gifts and food. There's always, always a Debbie Downer around Christmas who complains about commercialism and spending money and the expense. And my answer to that is always, do you see people with shopping carts full of things that they're keeping for themselves? Uh, when, when you see grocery carts overloaded with food for a feast, do you think they're all gonna eat that themselves? Uh, they're buying things to give away. They're buying things to share with other people. Who has an agenda to make you feel guilty about having too much fun and being too generous and giving too many things away? Who has an agenda to make you feel that way? It's not God. Now, don't take out a second mortgage to pay for Christmas. Don't max out your credit cards to pay for Christmas. But listen to what God told his people to do at the end of the year in Deuteronomy. He says this um, in, uh, in Deuteronomy 14, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before Yahweh your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. But if the journey is too long for you, or you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where Yahweh your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when Yahweh your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place which Yahweh your God chooses, and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before Yahweh your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part or inheritance with you. At the end of your harvest, the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your increase. I want you to bring a tithe of your increase into the storehouse. But if you live too far away from my house, if you live too far away from the temple or the tabernacle, then I want you to take that tenth of your crop, take the money and buy whatever food and whatever drink your heart desires. And then I want you to throw a really big party and I want you to invite everyone to it. And if everyone's doing this at the same time, there's gonna be a lot of parties going on around the town. Now, think of this in terms of how much money you made last year. What was your increase? What's a tenth of it? You can do the math really quickly. What kind of party would that pay for? What kind of party would that buy? God is pleased when we rejoice before him, when we give him thanks by enjoying his good blessings. God is pleased by this. Is it God who wants you to feel really guilty over having fun and enjoying his good gifts? No, certainly. Does, does that sound like God? No. Someone sent me a news article a few days ago. A CNN reporter interviewed a medical director at a Florida hospital, and this Florida director of a hospital said, Americans need to realize that Christmas in the year 2020 shouldn't be enjoyable because of this disease. And the CNN, asked, uh, the, the CNN hosts asked him, 
so what's your message to Americans this morning based on what you see and what you hope to see in the coming year? And here's what the medical director said. Christmas should not be fun this year, okay? This should be part of the negative 2020 that we've had. What? What? I understand, sir, why you are so miserable. I get it. But I'm not joining you in your misery. People of God, you see how powerful and meaningful it is that you are happy when everyone else is wallowing in their self-imposed affliction. The fact that you are merry when the world is acting like it's the end of human existence is a clear broadcast about who you belong to and who you rejoice in and what you believe. Nehemiah, he lived in some pretty challenging days. He was in the midst of rebuilding the temple and the city after Babylonian captivity. Uh, the people were oppressed. They were opposed. And then Nehemiah calls a holy convocation for all the people. Ezra reads God's law before all the people. And then Nehemiah says this. He says, now what I want you to do is rejoice. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. This is what the godly do. They keep singing the songs. They keep telling the story. They keep talking about it. They keep the party going because of their great deliverance, because the dragon has been defeated and we're just mopping up the leftovers. Remember that this is an ongoing war. The dragon tried to destroy the first Christmas, but he failed. And he's going to try to eliminate each subsequent one. But he won't be successful as long as we are covered by the Lamb of God, that we hold forth the commandments of the Father, that we live sacrificially, and that we keep rejoicing in the victory. Remember these things this Christmas and go out and keep fighting and keep frustrating the dragon. Eat the fat, drink the sweet, Send portions to those who have none. Do not sorrow. The joy of Yahweh is your strength. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great gift of your son who has initiated this battle with the, with, with the dragon, with Satan. And we pray that we would be his faithful soldiers, continue to strengthen us and make our hearts merry and uh, cause us to rejoice in all that you have uh, provided us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.